Okay, well, welcome to part 11 of our series on the doctrine of worship as we continue to kind of spend the summer looking at the biblical and reformed doctrine of worship, what the scriptures say about worship, how we are to worship God rightly uh, as His people, to kind of review where we have come from last week. We consider these three points. We considered that true worship of God, in some sense, entails all of life. Acts of worship must be the overflow of a godly life. External acts of worship, you know, coming to church or in the Old Testament offering sacrifices, these external acts of worship, apart from a godly life, and a heart devoted to the Lord, uh, are not pleasing to God, and they invite special judgment. So we kind of considered in that sense um, that true worship is wedded to everything we do in life, and not just when we come to church on Sundays. But another truth alongside this is, we considered last week, a secular versus sacred distinction. I simply mean by that that there are some things in Scripture that are to be treated as sacred, as set apart unto the Lord. I gave a few examples. We're going to talk about this more, but the Lord's Supper, for example. It is a supper in the sense of like any other supper that we may participate in in the world, but it is distinct. It is sacred. It is a set-apart supper. It is a holy supper. It is a special supper. And so uh, we're considering that there are some things in life that are still set-apart and distinctive. I want to look at this in the context of worship, of course. And where I went from that is this idea of distinctively Christian worship. And what I argued in that is that There is something unique about Christian external acts of worship. There are are things that are uniquely done by Christians as the people of God, as acts of worship and devotion. These are things that especially communicate uh, God's nature and glory and redemptive acts. And these are things that have actually been set set apart by God And He has given His promises to grow us, strengthen our faith, to lead us into perseverance through them. So I argued, I gave the analogy of digging a ditch last week. Um, Digging a ditch may be done from a heart of worship, but it is not an act of worship in and of itself. In some sense it is, in the sense that it is done from a heart of worship, But it is not something that only Christians do. It is not something that especially um, or uniquely communicates who God is or what He's done. And it's not something that God has given His blessing to as a means by which to strengthen our faith. And so I make these distinctions so that we can begin to look at worship and corporate worship um, specifically and with the right lens. So that's where we went last week. 
picking up on this today, I want to argue, basically, that corporate worship is distinct. It's distinct as a practice. It's distinct as a command. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. It's distinct in the very elements, the things that we do themselves. And essentially, I want to say that it is the most essential aspect of worship in the Christian life. And what we're going to do is, today is going to be a lot of, I'm going to need some help, so I hope you have your Bibles or a smartphone handy. <laughs> we're going to look, basically, I'm just going to, we're going to look at, a, a, our, our basic plan is just to look at a number of scriptures. That's it. Just to look at a number of scriptures, and next week I'm going to pull them all together. But you'll be able to see kind of what we're doing, where, what I'm arguing for as we look them up. So the next week, we're going to, we're, I'm going to make this argument that Scripture teach corporate, teaches that corporate worship is distinct. And then I'm going to look next week at why it's distinct. And we'll consider the presence of God in corporate worship. And then, of course, worship and the law gospel distinction as well, which will lead to um, a better understanding of, of what is permissible in worship, elements and practices and attitudes that are permissible in worship. So this is basically the big picture. I want to argue that true worship is found here in the middle. It is a combination of public worship, private worship, and an obedient godly life. True worship is not just public worship. It's not just private worship. It's not just um, a godly life. In fact, uh, if we overemphasize one or the other, there is an imbalance. And it's going to hinder the fruitfulness of God's people. And that's our goal, right? To bear fruit, pleasing to God, to adorn the gospel, to walk obediently. Well, true worship is found right in the middle of those three things. However, at the same time, very visual today. Got another graph for you. Check this out. I'm also going to argue that even though it is a combination of all three, public worship is that big wheel, that big gear that really essentially pushes the other two, drives the other two. I'm going to argue that it's the most essential and central aspect of these three things in the Christian life. Public worship is what fuels godly living. Public worship is what fuels private worship. So it's not to say that public worship is more important than the other two, because that would seem to imply that the other two are less important or aren't important. Think of what Jesus says to the Pharisees when he comments on their lack of love and justice and mercy. He says, you tithe on every mint and dill, dill and cumin, every little herb that you get. You set aside 10% in strictness. He says, but you neglect justice, mercy, the love of God. And what does he say? He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. It's not that godly living and private worship are less important. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
I'm saying all three are equal, but there is one that drives and fuels the other one. There is uh, two others that feed off of something else. And that's kind of the big picture of what I want to communicate in this. So, the main question here, what we're dealing with today. This is the question that we want to answer. If we can worship God anytime and anywhere, not just in a temple, right? Not just at a specific day or time, but anytime we can worship God in our homes. And if all of life is worship in some sense, which I argued last week, love, justice, and mercy, if, if obedience is better than sacrifice, as we read in the Old Testament, if all of these things are true, then why go to church? That's the main question I want to answer today and next week. If we can worship anywhere, why, why, why go to church? If it truly is spiritual, if it truly is something that we do in all of life, then what purpose then is going to church? And of course, related to that is, how important is church if everything else I do in life is of equal importance? If worship is all of life and me going out and, you know, Fighting for justice in the workplace is an act of worship, just like going to church is an act of worship. Then why is church, is church more important? That's the main question. Why go to church if worship is all of life? And so what I've done here is we're going to do some survey of scripture. And I put the red here, uh, things that I'm hoping that you all one of you, we need some help here, will grab one of those verses and read them for us. I'll cover the black. I'll either summarize or read them. I have them in my notes so we can move through quickly. But I want to look at corporate worship in the Old Testament and then corporate worship in the New Testament. Remember, I'm I'm arguing that worship is treated as distinct from all of life in the Scriptures. And so let's begin by surveying a few passages. Exodus 3.12. Will someone look that up? I got it. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the peoples out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So this is God talking about the Exodus. And he gives the reason for the Exodus. And that reason is that they might, let me find it here, where am I, yeah, there we go, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, he tells Moses, you shall serve me on this mountain. You see, the purpose of the Exodus was corporate worship. They could worship God privately in Egypt. But they could not worship in the way that God wanted them to worship. With a temple, the sacrifice, everything. The Sabbath was was central in this because they work seven days a week. That's what slave masters do to you. They don't give you any rest. So the, the purpose of the Exodus, God says, so you can come serve me on this mountain in Jerusalem in a corporate sense. All right, who's got Exodus 15, 17? 
This is the song of Moses. Exodus, Exodus 15, 17. Somebody be looking up Deuteronomy 12 while Kim gets that. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is a song of Moses talking about the deliverance. And the promise here is that You have made for your abode, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. What is an abode? What? House. A dwelling. Right? And this is the sanctuary that your hands have established. You see, this is God, Moses singing about the fact that God brought them out to worship so that he could dwell among them. Of course, that's a theme repeated all throughout the Old Testament. We're not really going to get into it. I'm just going to assume that you know it. But the temple represented the dwelling of God. That's why when the judgment fell upon Israel in the exile, they visibly saw the cloud leave the temple. The presence of the Lord departed. Ichabod was written over the door. So this is talking about God wants to dwell among them. Something we'll see uh, more specifically next week. But he wants to dwell with them. All right. Next we have in this uh, Exodus 25 and following. And the reason I just cite this is because this is a long list of instructions that God gives Moses. Now that they've been brought out of Egypt, he gives them specific instructions on the ark, the tabernacle, uh, the temple, of course anticipating the temple, But this whole long section of careful instructions on how they were to worship God. He brought them out in order to instruct them how they were to corporately come and worship God. Next here we have Exodus 29, 44 through 46. I meant to make that one red, but that's okay. I got my Bible right here. Exodus 29:44 says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his priests I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Here's the same thing. It's not that he couldn't be present with them privately in Egypt. The idea here is God wants to dwell among them. That's why he brings them out. Now I just reference here next just the the book of Leviticus as a whole. (laughs) Uh, Maybe for some of you who are here... um, when uh, Dr. Humphreys taught through this uh, in the fall and looked at holiness in the book of Leviticus, uh, excellent uh, Sunday school series study of that. Uh, but basically, I referenced this because Le- the book of Leviticus is about holiness. It's about corporate holiness, but it's also about personal holiness. And it had all of these laws, all of these rituals, all of these ceremonies 
regarding cleanliness and what happens if you touch a dead body? What happens if you become defiled? What washings were necessary? What if you got leprosy? The priest had to cleanse you. All of these things. And, and the reason I, I reference it here is because these all have to do with, uh, not all of them, a lot of them have to do with private, personal things. Individual things. So it's not just worship. Okay, let me put it this way. The temple concerned corporate worship, but you had to privately also pursue cleanliness individually to be able to come and worship corporately. So, of course, we saw last week that Israel took all of the laws to their extreme and neglected the obedience in all of life, which was essentially disobedience. But here, simply to illustrate the point that corporate worship entails both private worship and communal worship. That's my point in referencing the book of Leviticus. All right, who's got Deuteronomy 12? Okay, go ahead. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations, whom you go and dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been ensnared before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may be ashamed? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord takes they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire before their, to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take it away from it. This really gets at the regular principle, which we're still probably a month away from touching on. But I cite it here uh, to remind us that God cared very much about how and the, they were to worship and the things that they were to do, people of Israel. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. You don't have the freedom to devise your own way of worshiping me. You don't have the freedom to look and say, Oh man, the pagans, they really have a nice band. Let's go. I'm not trying to say a band is bad, not at all. But I'm giving an analogy. They have a nice band. Let's copy that. That will will really inspire our people. They, don't have, they did not have the freedom to look and see how other people and other religions were worshiping and incorporate those things into their worship. Again, it gets on the regular principle. We're not going to get into that here. But I cite it here just to remind us. God brought them out, gave them specific instructions. They were to follow those instructions very, very carefully. In a corporate sense, God cared about how they worshiped. All right. Of course, if there's questions at any time, just feel free to raise your hand or interrupt. (laughs) We're a small group. Now, I cite Exodus 28, which is, of course, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 28, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Again, we're going to talk about the Sabbath sometime next month. We're not going to talk about it in detail today. But I cite it here and then in Leviticus 23 to show you kind of the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath. In Leviticus 23.3, 
the Lord says, Six days shall your work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. What is a convocation? A gathering. A convocation is a sacred assembly. The Sabbath was not just a personal day of rest in the Old Testament. It was a day of worship. Convocation is plural. A day of corporate worship. A day of a sacred assembly. And this is the very same language, the very same word that the New Testament picks up on to speak about the gathered church in the New Testament. In fact, we're going to get to some of those references in the New Testament. um, Where they talk about the church as a gathered assembly, a, a convocation, a holy convocation. So again, I'm just trying to give a big picture here of a corporate sense. Even the Sabbath concerned corporate worship in the Old Testament. Language is picked up by the New Testament. And lastly, I I referenced the book of Psalms because what do we see in the book of Psalms? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Corporate, corporate, corporate. But you also see private, right? You see David. Um, I'm on my bed with tears. I cry out to the Lord. You know, you you see both. But without a doubt, you see more emphasis on the sacred assemblies and corporate worship and let everything that has breath... Praise the Lord, the corporate aspect of worship in the Old Testament. All right, now let's go to the New. Got four verses there. If you would, I'm just going to ask right now, raise your hand. Acts 1, 12, Kim. Acts 27. Who's got it? John. 1 Corinthians 16. Trent. Hebrews 10. Jason, thank you. Now again, we, we saw corporate worship in the Old Testament. Now let's look and see about corporate worship in the New Testament. Again, we're not, you know, private worship, we've already talked about that. Private worship, we see it in both Testaments. But what about corporate worship? All right, uh, Kim, Acts one twelve through 14. So right away after the ascension of Christ, we see them gathering together in one accord to devote themselves. That's not just one prayer meeting, but this is devoting themselves to prayer together. Not just private prayer, coming together to pray. 
Next we see Acts 2.42, a very famous verse. Again, talking about the New Testament church right after Pentecost. And what does it say? And they devoted themselves, again that word, this is an ongoing devotion. This is an aspect of their lives. Right? If you devote yourself to you know, a particular hobby, you practice, you play. Right? You read about it, you think about it. This is devoting themselves. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Breaking of bread entailed the Lord's Supper. Prayer, element of worship, teaching, preaching, the Apostles' doctrine. This is, I guess, the quintessential verse of the, first, uh, of the early church describing what, they devoted, what their lives looked like, what they devoted themselves to. So devoting themselves is not just private acts of worship in all of life, but coming together and devoting themselves together with these things. All right, Acts 27. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I reference this because, again, it's another gathering. In fact, the word here is uh, gathered together as synagogue, or synagogue would be the Greek. This is sacred assembly. This is that word of holy convocation. They gathered together. Paul here intentionally delayed his journey one day so that he could, on the first day of the week, come together and teach them, the church there. In fact, it makes Again, we're going to consider this in a few weeks, but the New Testament makes a point to emphasize that this was the first day of the week. Normally, in every other... Think about it. You ever hear the New Testament say, on the third day of the week, on the fourth day of the week, on the sixth day of the week? No. The only reason you would reference the first day of the week is if there's something you're trying to communicate about the first day of the week. And we see that on several, both in the Gospels and in um, the early church in the New Testament, this emphasis on the first day of the week. And what are they doing on the first day of the week? They're worshiping. We're going to get into that when we talk about the Sabbath. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.4. We're going to talk about this passage again next week too, when we talk about God dwelling among His people. But here is this instance of... Um, you know, there was sin in the Corinthians church, and Paul is rebuking them. And he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, and so on. Again, I, I reference it because it talks about an assembly and convocation again. When you are assembled, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a corporate holy convocation. And the Spirit of Jesus is present with you in a special and unique way. Even acts of church discipline are holy acts of worship. So again, a corporate sense. God is present. They are coming together corporately. All right. 
1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. All right, so, on the first day of every week, I'm going to argue that's a pattern. Every week, that's, that's a command, too. It's, not, it's in the imperative. It's not like, oh, since you happen to be coming together on the first day of every week, do, it, do this then. He's saying, no, when you come together on the first day of every week, put aside something. This is where we get this notion that giving is an act of worship. Right? Um, giving is an act of worship, but they're coming together on the first day of the week and they're, they're giving their gifts corporately. No explanation is needed for why it's on the first day of the week. They already know what's going on. The practice was, was already there. But again, corporate sense, first day of the week, even giving is an act of worship. All right, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the idea here is how are we to stir up one another to love and good works? Well, one way in which we do that is not neglecting to meet together. Corporate worship. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, how do you stir someone up to good works? How do you encourage one another? One aspect of that is simply showing up faithfully and worshiping God. Just coming to church so that you sing alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ and you pray alongside with them and you, and you study the Word of God alongside with them. You join hands with them. You participate in the Lord's Supper alongside of them. That's one central way in which we stir one another up to good works. And it's too often we think, well, how, how do I encourage someone? I've got to take them out to coffee or I've got to give them a motivational speech. Well, yeah, Sometimes, absolutely, that's, that's necessary. I'm not saying, arguing otherwise. But one way, another way in which we do it is just joining to worship alongside them. Let's not overlook that fact. So from this survey, what we've seen? We have seen that God commanded Israel to corporately gather in worship in the Old Testament. The examples that we see in Scripture, like the Psalms, demonstrate this well. So again, here's a command. This is what you're to do. Don't add anything or take away. But also we see it as an example. This is what they were doing. What do we see in the New Testament? God commands the New Church, Testament church to gather corporately in worship. Don't neglect to meet together on the first day of the week. And then the examples in Acts and the epistles demonstrate that this is what they were doing as well. This is how we build a doctrine. We look at the command or example in Scripture. 
I'm just going to have to go ahead and get it out here. That's why baptism. <laughs> There's no command or example of infant baptism. I know that's debatable. But you form a practice, you form a doctrine based, partly based upon not just an example of Scripture, because a lot of Scripture is narrative, and you can't just say, well, they did this, so I did this. But when you see both, it's very important. So, now let's turn and look to the distinctive elements of worship. And we have, I don't know, seven minutes, so we're going to have to be quick here. But um, I don't think there's going to be any disagreement about um, what's going on here. What about the elements of worship that we see in the Scripture? What I want to argue is that, um, by and large, these are corporate activities. Not private. Let's uh, move quickly through these. If you can grab a red one, that would be great. But let's think about the idea of prayer. Prayer is an act of worship, right? We definitely see some private examples of prayer. We see them in the Old Testament. The Psalms. Daniel. Right? He was caught praying in his closet. We see in the New Testament, Jesus went to this mountain to pray. Off by himself. All night in prayer. Jesus even says, go into your room privately instead of standing on the corner and announcing your prayers in public so that you can, everyone can see your righteousness. So we see both, but let's consider a few passages. Matthew 18, 19-20. I'm going to jump on this next week when we talk about God's presence in worship, corporate worship. But it's just striking that he says, look, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for my, by my Father in heaven. Prayer, in a corporate sense, is unique. Prayer, in a corporate sense, is unique. Not, again, not to undermine private prayer. All right, Acts 1.14. Uh, I think we already considered that earlier. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Okay, together with the women and Mary, the mother. They were all coming together to devote themselves to prayer together. Acts 2.42, we already saw that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Another corporate Emphasis on prayer. 2 Corinthians 1.11 Here we see, Paul says, You also must help us by prayer, he tells the church, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Prayers of many. This is plural aspect of prayer. And then 1 Timothy 2. Um, I guess you, whoever's got that, you don't have to read the whole passage. Just go ahead and uh, read the first passage. I mean the verse first, sorry. First verse. First of all, then, I urge the publication of prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people. 
So the context here, I'm not going to uh, spend time in it, but um, he's giving instructions on corporate worship. That's the, the section that this falls into. Um, in fact, if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 14, where he turns towards the conclusion of this section, he says, I'm writing you these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He's talking about corporate worship. So he's saying, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And he goes on down in verse 8, that I desire in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. And then he goes on to, to address the women and such as that. The idea here is that prayer is an aspect of corporate worship. I hope that's a very indisputable, undisputable fact in the New Testament. So, prayer, corporate activity. Let's look at singing. Oops, there we go, there we go. Singing in the book of Psalms, again, we see both private and, and corporate. Uh, we see both. I think probably we see more corporate than private, but we, we definitely see both. But what about the New Testament's instruction on, on singing? What does, does the New Testament instruct us to sing? And when it does, is it talking about private or corporate singing? Well, Ephesians 5.19, addressing one, uh, excuse me, do not be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There is a plural emphasis you address one another in song. You see the very same thing in this parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does that happen? Teaching and admonishing another, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So, how do we let the word of Christ dwell in us? How do we teach and admonish one another? One way in which we do that is coming together corporately and singing. So singing is a corporate event. Reading of Scripture. Uh, somebody will get the uh, Second Timothy. I'll get the first one. First Timothy 4.13. Again, Paul instructions to the church. It's a pastoral epistle. Young Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, here's what's going on. Here's what I need you to do. Here's how one ought to behave in the household of God. And he's giving him this list of commands, and he says here, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The public reading of Scripture. Something that should take place in a corporate public at respect. 2 Timothy 4. Who's got that? Go ahead. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preaching is a public event. It's an aspect of corporate worship. So the reading and the preaching of worship, excuse me, of scripture, takes place in the context 
This is a, a corporate element here. I do want to point just briefly, I don't want to be controversial, but there is no example or command in the New Testament to read privately. In fact, the only one that I can think of is when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah, and he says, uh, I, I don't have anybody to explain it to me. I don't know what's going on. But there's no command that tells us to read through the Bible in a year uh, or something of that respect. Um, I don't want to imply at all that it's not our duty, because it is. They didn't have the Scriptures like we do. We have a copy of it available. If you wanted to hear the Scriptures, you had to go to, you had to, go to church back then. The New Testament reflects that. But I do want to point out one thing in 1 Peter 2.22-2.3. Peter tells the church, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. Some translations add, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Because that's what he's exhorting them to. And what is that word? It's the word by which they were born again. It is the word by which that will remain forever. Verse 25. And this word, verse 25, is the good news that was preached to you. The exhortations in Scripture, in the New Testament, around the word of God, concern the public reading of Scripture... Preaching of Scripture, I say probably by implication, the meditation on Scripture. Couldn't you also say, though, that make the argument that when Christ says to feed on Him, that would mean or imply the abiding in the Word? Absolutely, because He is the living Word of God, without a doubt. And that's what I'm saying. We have, the, we have means now to do that in ways that we didn't have before. We have our own copy of Scripture, like they did not have before. And uh, we would be foolish and, yes, disobedient if we neglected uh, to read and study Scripture on our own. But my point is just, I just want to bring up that whether you argue that historical circumstances or not, the emphasis on Scripture in the New Testament all falls upon the corporate activities of public reading of Scripture, listening to it, and the preaching. All right, um, I'm not going to go through these because we've got, uh, we've got one minute. Um, but basically, the Lord's Supper is also a corporate event. In 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about that the Lord's Supper is not a participation with one another. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 11, you have... Paul rebuking the church because they were being selfish about the Lord's Supper. He's saying, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? The Lord's Supper is a corporate event. You are uh, abusing the Lord's Supper to your own judgment when you treat it as a private event, as a selfish event. 
And of course, we have no private example or command in the New Testament uh, for the Lord's Supper. It's why I shudder when, when people do it at weddings, particularly. Um, I, I think that is, I think it's very dangerous. Um, it, it invites the judgment of God, thankfully. God is gracious. Many believers who do that, God is gracious with, and we ought to be gracious with Him as well. Uh, but um, I, I think that's no small matter of uh, New Testament emphasis, that the Lord's Supper is something that is corporate. And when you separate it as individual, um, you invite the special judgment of God. And then, of course, we see baptism uh, most often taking place in a corporate sense. John the Baptist baptized Jesus publicly. Acts 2, the Pentecost baptisms were public. We do have some private baptisms in Acts, but I would argue that these baptisms take place outside the local church in the sense that they were missionary contexts. And there was no local church established. And the apostles were acting as the local church for uh, the first century in that sense. So... um, But baptism as a whole, if we understand it, is something that is corporate. We're making a public profession of faith. And um, the church is, in a sense, coming alongside us as witnesses to that event. All right, the conclusion here is the weight of New Testament worship falls on corporate activity, both in example and command. And it is impossible and disobedient to obey some of the New Testament commands regarding worship in a private way. I'm thinking particularly of the Lord's Supper or baptism. You don't baptize yourself, right? You don't go home and participate in the Lord's Supper. You uh, abuse the table in that regard. And I would argue as well, if you only did private worship, you would be disobedient as well. You're neglecting to come together. You're neglecting to teach one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. You're neglecting the public reading and preaching of Scripture. So, from this, looking ahead, we're going to argue that corporate worship, why all this emphasis on corporate worship? Because God is present in a special way. In the midst of God's people, unlike His presence in all of creation or in our private worship, and we'll see this in both Old Testament and New Testament. And it's unique because if we understand the distinction between law and gospel in the Christian life, it gives critical insight into why we gather in corporate worship and what we're doing in that sense. I'm going to have to explain that. I know you're probably scratching your head, uh, but essentially we tend to look at worship as things we do for God, Well, the gospel teaches us that there are aspects of worship wherein God's doing things for us. And we have to keep that in mind. And this will illuminate why coming together corporately is important. All right. uh, We don't have time for last questions, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. And you can come up to me afterward if you'd like to say something else. Dear Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word and the volume of revelation which we can turn to and piece these things together And that we can know, Lord, uh, what your truth is. And, Lord, not be pulled and pushed by all the various opinions out there. We do pray, Lord, that you would bind our hearts to the Word of God. And that we would listen to it. And not just the opinions of man. But that truly we would devote ourselves to you. And what you have revealed to your Spirit. 
Lord, we need your help in this. We need your grace. And so we ask that the scriptures read and considered today would weigh heavy upon us and you would lead us into truth through meditating on them by the power of the Spirit. Lord, be with us now as we do turn to worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.